Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to the final episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast in 2021. Yes, we'll be back in 2022. Excited to uh, to restart, but very excited for the rest of this holiday season. So I hope you all get some rest as well. But it's been a fantastic year uh, for this podcast and for us here at Device Talks. The world continues to have its struggles and uh, we all uh, hope for less COVID as you'll hear later on in the program. But uh, I'm really grateful for the support this podcast has had. So uh, thank you, everyone, for your support. We're pouring the energy of this podcast into our in-person meetings. You can find out details about that on devicetalks.com. We'll start registration for Device Talks Boston in Minnesota in a couple of weeks. So uh, next next month, next year, go to devicetalks.com and uh, check out the program updates. I think you'll be uh, excited and I think you'll see some uh, some familiar names. So today though, we're exploring heart failure at Abbott. We're going to talk to three uh, distinguished professionals at Abbott about what they're doing to help people with that dreadful disease. We'll open up with a conversation that I had with Dr. Philip Adamson. He is chief medical officer of the group. He'll talk about cardio memes and he'll, he'll explain how technology really empowers the patients are living with heart failure. Later on, we'll speak with Kevin Bork. Kevin Bork is vice president of research and development. And also, I spoke at the same interview with Dr. Robert Cormos, who's the divisional VP of global affairs at heart failure. We talked with them about many things, uh, but, but talked a lot about HeartMate, about HeartMate 3, about its use in the pediatric population. And uh, that's a subject that actually came up a few times uh, in this conversation, including in our uh, wrap-up conversation. We brought in the entire editorial staff to identify their top stories of 2021. We each got to pick one, and we ran through it. We were joined by Chris Newmarker, of course, executive editor, by Danielle Kirsch, senior editor, by Sean Hooley, associate editor, and Brian Bunce, our pharma editor. So we brought in the entire team. We assembled the news team to uh, give our top stories of 2021. So I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation, which was sponsored by our friends at KNF. We'll hear from KNF a couple of times in the podcast as well. So once again, we will not be putting out a podcast the next two weeks. We'll be back the first Friday in 2022. And from all of us at Device Talks, all of you, please uh, enjoy some time, the holidays, enjoy your families, and uh, we look forward to rejoining with you in the new year. Let's go. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Newmarker, how are you, sir? Good to be here, man. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. I'm feeling like George Bailey at the end of It's a Wonderful Life because the whole town is here. We have the whole Mass Device MDO drug discovery town. They're here to, to, to bring Hello, us Hello, you old savings alone. <laughs> Hello, Brian Bunce. Hello. <laughs> Sean Hooley has emptied the uh, his, his expense account. He's dumping a jar of money into our laps. It's... Uh, it's quite special. It's a good time to be here. Uh... <laughs> I just, I had realized watching that this year that, that uh, the remake would be less exciting because I think, uh, I think Mary would just start a GoFundMe page and that would be a lot less dramatic. She'd be like, yeah, hey, just be... Yeah. like, Hey, we got our, we got our total. Yay. There'd be no singing, no yeah. nog. 
So yeah, the, the six-year-old daughter already understands the internet and did a GoFundMe campaign. <laughs> That's right. Like, Maybe Zuzu okay, got Dad, I raised all, <laughs> raised all the money. Where you go, Zuzu? We don't need no angel. <laughs> <laughs> Good point, Chris Newmarker. So yeah. no, we're all here not to collect uh, dollar bills, but to uh, to collect wisdom of the year, twenty twenty-two. Yeah, you don't uh, need to give any money to the Tom Salemi go- Self Betterment Fund. No, like, no, no, that that is the the costs <laughs> are too high for that fund. Believe me. <laughs> We are uh, got a lot of betterment, a lot of betterment necessary. Yeah. But we're going to ask each of our uh, our esteemed colleagues to supply us with their news of the year. It doesn't need to be an impactful piece of news. It can be their favorite article, it be a favorite profile. It can be anything of the like that they just when they think of 2021, that's the first story they sort of think of. So we uh, have not yet assigned the order of these uh, these top stories. So for that, I have stolen this high piece of technology from my son's Yahtzee game. I will roll dice. Danielle is number one. Brian Bunt, Danielle Kirsch, senior editor at Mass Device is number one. Hi, Danielle. We haven't uh, said hello to you yet. Hey, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> and I'm not sure if Sean Hooley has chimed in yet, but Sean, make sure people hey, know Danielle you're here. Danielle Kirsch, senior editor. Hey, Sean Hooley, associate editor. <laughs> I am here and I've apparently had my expense account volunteered to be dumped into the bank. So There you go. All right. <laughs> yes, that's right. Feeling generous today. I meant Dower's expense account. I went around. Anyway, anyway, we don't need to go into It's a Wonderful Life again. So, Danielle, you're number one. Brian's number two. Sean is number three. Chris is number four. I am number five. Number six is a do over. Let's see who goes first. Number five, me. Yes. I can show you all. See, there it is, number five. Although there's no way you would have known that I didn't flip it. So, so what story? What what story for my this year? story for this year? The one I thought of when I thought of 2021, and it's one we've talked about a bit, but still, I'm remark. I find it remarkable that Vicarious Surgical was able to go public via a SPAC company that we had on the podcast in, I think it was June 2020, and at the time just seemed to be uh, a smallish startup. With, uh, with Big Dreams is now valued at over $1.2 billion and is now trading in the New York Stock Exchange. I just think it was a great sign for MedTech exiting-wise, uh, the fact that companies that small can, uh, can grow that quickly and uh, just made for an interesting perspective on surgical robotics, where we all sort of had written it off or at least given the win to Intuitive and, of course, Medtronic's coming in with Hugo. We thought all the big companies would take over, and we've got these these smaller companies that uh, are carving a, a niche for themselves. And uh, actually led to a conversation yeah. I had with a VC where I was basically asking, like, what, you know, what do you find compelling about surgical robotics? And in our conversation, she made a, a comparison to basically desktop versus or, or, or large room fold computer versus desktops. I mean, back in the 70s, people were like, oh, you won't need any any desktop computer. We all have the big all the big computers I need. No one was famously said by Ken Olson. No one's going to need a desk, a computer on their desk. Well, we may need a surgical robotic system that can someday fit on a desk. We may need smaller versions of what we have, and that might be the opening for companies like Vicaria. So, so I think Vicaria Surgical's SPAC uh, is definitely the one I'll, I'll be thinking of a few years down the road. Well, and overall, that's that's a. I mean, the SPACs themselves are a huge story yeah. this year. I mean, that's just. I mean, the fact that last year I mean, we had the Butterfly Network, which had this handheld ultrasound, doing a SPAC, and at that point, I mean, I'll just admit it. Last year, I didn't even know what a SPAC deal was. I was like, what what kind of deal is this? I'm not like a financial wizard, and I looked this up, and it, you know, it's uh, now we're seeing them all over the place in med tech and a host of other industries. Um, it's it's really become this kind of like financial we'll see you know whether 
people in, in the long run decide this was a good or a bad thing, but it's definitely become a financial tool for a lot of these companies to go public. I thought it said financial wizard on your LinkedIn profile. No? No. You know, I should add that. That sounds good. <laughs> financial wizard. Sounds, uh... Yes. All right. So that's my pick. Vicarious Surgical's SPAC. Let us find our next victim. I'm going to roll the dice again. We'll keep one, two, three, four. One being Danielle, two Brian, three Sean, four Chris Dumarker, five, six rollover. Going to do it again. Five, six rollover. Number four, Chris Newmarker. Okay. Well, another really like big story in, in MedTech this year was the uh, supply chain problems mm-hmm. and our, uh, you know, our, our managing editor, Jim Hammeran for MDA is on, uh, is on parental leave right now. Congrats, Jim. <laughs> um, he, uh, you know, he actually uh, had some you know, really good articles and, you know, not just the fact that the, the pandemic has caused all kinds of you know, supply chain problems for device companies, but, um, you know, kind of rolling it forward and saying, you know, the, you know, climate changes probably going to cause supply chain problems for a conceivable time to come. But I mean, it, it says something that we've, it's, it's really been having an effect on the industry. I mean, just, you know, we had like Philips had a giant, you know, uh, huge recall of respiratory devices and, you know, competitor ResMed theoretically should have been able to step in and grab a lot of market share out of it. And, you know, and they had their, uh, you know, CEO saying, uh, yeah, supply chain problems. You know, we can't meet all the demand we're getting, you know, because, because of the Phillips recall. Um, and we, we heard, um, you know, about supply chain problems too. And J and J, uh, you know, you know, kind of like stretched out the, uh, you know, timeline for its, uh, Atava surgical robots that they'd like to roll out. Mm-hmm. You know? So, I mean, sometimes I think that supply chains might be the CEO equivalent of like the dog ate my homework. <laughs> However, I mean, it's, it's definitely a, a problem and we're going to see companies trying to figure things out around for some time to come. I mean, actually just today, I mean, I, I, two articles I posted at MDO, I had an article about a, uh, a medical device company buying a supplier, just buying a, a injection molding maker because they wanted to secure their supply chain mm-hmm. better, which I mean, and, you know, at the same time, I, I had an article about Formlabs saying that uh, the number of 3D printers they sold, sold to health providers during the pandemic quadrupled. I mean, not, not the number they sold. I mean, the, the number of hospitals and health providers that are their customers quadrupled during during the pandemic. Like, you know, you know those hospitals bringing in 3D printers to, you know, make stuff on site. So, I mean, times are changing. Absolutely. No, that was an interesting integration. And you mentioned ResMed. I know Mick Farrell had uh, posted on LinkedIn last week or the week before, basically calling for medical devices to be a priority customer for chips. You know, as you know, we don't need more cars. We don't need more of this or more of that. We always, always need medical devices. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. In 2022, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I think it's my understanding that the, the chip shortage could begin to resolve itself then, but uh, I'm not really taking anything for granted anymore. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the chip shortage was caused by all kinds of different freak events, but that seems to be happening a lot lately. Sure does. Well, the other thing about the supply chain is that the old model of supply chain was primarily based on lean. So the philosophy was you try to save money by having less things to ship or what have you. And then you have a natural disaster, you have COVID and that all kind of (laughs) takes a nosedive. So it seems like a lot of supply chain companies have to kind of evolve and develop a new paradigm that's more nimble. It's that rethinks how to stock stuff in factories and warehouses. So it's a big kind of learning curve there. Absolutely. No, for sure. Yeah, totally. 
Well, first, I'd like to bring in Dr. Philip Adamson. He is the Chief Medical Officer of the Heart Failure Division at Abbott. But before we begin that interview, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, KNF. KNF specializes in the development, design, and production and distribution of diaphragm pumps and systems for handling gases and liquids. I'm here with Dave Vanderbeck. Dave's the product group manager at KNF. Dave, you do a lot of work in the medtech industry. Tell me, what kind of companies do you work with and what sort of work do you do? Our customer base, it's really a who's who of medical companies from startups to multi-billion dollar corporations. The medical market has been a major market for KNF since our beginnings over 75 years ago. All of this experience over the 75 years means that KNF is familiar with the factors that are important to medical device designers, things such as the FDA, ISO, and other regulatory controls, and of course, being successfully audited by many of our customers on a regular basis. Regarding the types of medical companies that KNF is involved with, diagnostics is probably our largest segment where we provide solutions to traditional clinical diagnostic systems as well as newer sectors such as molecular diagnostics, point of care devices, and smart products. On these devices, we provide many functions, including needle wash, liquid waste handling, reagent and sample transfer, liquid circulation, dosing and metering, degassing, and even general pneumatics. Frequently, we even provide all of these functions on the same device. But pumps are so basic to the handling of fluids and gases that we get involved with many other types of medical devices. Ventilators, for one example, of where we are proud to have supplied compressors to several premier manufacturers during the pandemic. But in addition to that specific application, some of the broad fields we supply pumps into include cardiology, ophthalmology, arthropedics, pulmonology, anesthesia equipment, dialysis, circulation assist, negative pressure wound therapy, endoscope reprocessing, dental suction, and more. In short, when there is a medical application where a pump or compressor is needed to reliably transfer or compress a liquid or gas, there's a good chance that we can offer an optimized solution. Well, that's great. If you want to find out more about KNF, you can do two things. You can go to K knf.com can also hang on we'll be back with another message from knf a little later in the podcast well dr philip adamson welcome to the podcast well thanks tom thanks for having me i typically open these up by trying to find out how someone got into medicine and into med tech and i do want to i do want to hit upon that in a moment but i've never had the opportunity to say phil how'd you get into podcasting because you have your own podcast as well <laughs> Tell us yeah, about it, Between Two Ventricles. Between Two Ventricles became a, a real passion because it provides a venue for physicians, nurses, even patients to talk about heart failure. Heart failure is a disease that affects so many people that to bring all the stakeholders together to talk about every aspect of heart failure was really an opportunity. And I think people have really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to hear a variety of different perspectives. That's terrific. And what is the frequency? Who are the guests and, uh, and where can they find it? We are on Spotify and it's a once a month, currently once a month podcast called Between Two Ventricles. You can search on, on Spotify and get that. 
the groups that we bring on to the podcast really are diverse. In fact, we've talked with Kelly McCants, for example, at Louisville that runs the Institute for Health Equity at uh, the Norton Health System for uh, about health equity and heart failure. We've talked about with Danny Goldstein, a cardiothoracic surgeon, about how COVID has impacted the care of patients with heart failure and all the way to advanced therapies, such as with uh, mechanical circulatory support. We talked to nurses who, the past president of the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses, who really talked about how does nursing fit into the matrix that a patient sees, for example, when they come to, to, to be cared for with heart failure. We talked about uh, the treatment of different aspects and comorbidities of heart failure all the way to a patient to tell us what's it like, you know, what's, what's it like to have heart failure, not only in the back of your mind all the time, but when it gets bad and patients have this drowning sensation, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that you can't really get in your mind until you hear somebody say it or you experience it. And so that's kind of the broad base of how we've approached heart failure and the knowledge base there. That's great. All right. Well, it sounds like a, an important podcast. So between two ventricles and you can find it on Spotify. Terrific. Now, tell me how you got into MedTech. You're a physician and you joined St. Jude in 2015, I believe. Uh, I don't know if it was a CMO position, but talk a bit about your transition from, uh, from being a clinician to joining industry. I'm always interested in how that happens. Tom, I spent about 15 years on the faculty at the University of Oklahoma and then really focused on the, the burgeoning understanding of how to treat people with heart failure. Because before, say, 1985, 1990, honestly, there was nothing that could be done. It was a uniformly fatal almost hopeless disease. And we, we broke the barriers of understanding the pathophysiology of heart failure, bringing remarkable drugs, and then subsequently remarkable devices that do uh, treat the underlying mechanisms of heart failure. And I was involved at that level of mostly the development of the devices that we have today for uh, treatment of this disease including defibrillators and cardiac resynchronization therapy devices and, and, and the medications, along with remote monitoring. And, and that's where I really felt was important to develop was how do we get into the life of a patient who has heart failure? Because honestly, the 15 minutes of fame they get in front of the doctor uh, <laughs> once every six months is such a small sliver of time. Sure. And all the badness happened when they weren't standing or sitting in the, in the office. And so the idea of either using an already implanted therapy delivery device or a freestanding diagnostic that can be implanted, all was very intriguing to me. So we've been involved in all of those trials subsequently uh, developed a system called the cardio men's heart failure system. And, and that was purchased by St. Jude Medical. Uh, shortly thereafter, they, they invited me to be a part of, of the company to help develop those kinds of concepts and how they work together. And that uh, after, I don't know, 27 years of clinical practice, that seemed like I could maybe touch a lot more heart failure patients, honestly, than in my clinical practice. And at that point, I, uh, said yes. And, and, and it's been, you know, I've had never looked back. I mean, it was a medical director position. I've, I've, I've moved after the APID acquisition now to the chief medical officer of a division, uh, the heart failure division of the medical devices uh, here at, at Abbott. Man, I learned something new every day. I'm responsible for reimbursement, for talking to governments around the world, understanding how heart failure is managed around the world. How do we bring cost-effective solutions to people who live in 
Brazil or London or, you know, El Reno, Oklahoma. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's really amazing to have this opportunity. I'm not sure if I'm putting my ignorance on display here, but I didn't see that your, your connection to CardioMEMS. Were you involved with the founding of CardioMEMS? I was. I put the first one in in North America. And then I was the co-principal investigator of the champion trial. I actually ran the North American feasibility study that led to the foundation of the champion trial. I, I, I published the design paper for that and helped design that study. And then uh, Bill Abraham and I ran that study through its entirety, uh, including the extended follow-up period. It presented that to governments around the world, including the FDA here in the United States, and used it in my clinical practice and found it to be a remarkable opportunity to make people understand their disease, not only understand their disease as an educational piece, but also to more effectively keep them well and out of the hospital. Okay, great. So what is your purview now at uh, Abbott? What do you oversee? I oversee the portfolio that we have with our heart failure product lines, which are CardioMEMS, the Centromag temporary mechanical circulatory support device for shock for patients who come in with acute heart failure, and uh, the chronic uh, mechanical circulatory support device called HeartMate 3. Uh, all of, and, and so essentially medical affairs provides a clinical consulting service to research and development, research and technology, to um, reimbursement, to regulatory decision-making, to clinical trial development, to sales, to commercial, to, you know, everybody, every every facet of how Abbott in this division works. So we provide that clinical acumen, that clinical uh, basis for how do we approach not only the disease, but how do we ensure that our efforts are really focused on improving the patient's outcome and the patient's life? And I think that's the key element that made me feel comfortable making the change from clinical practice into industry is it was very clear to me that this company has understood that if the patient benefits and the doctor's job is made easier, then all the business stuff falls in line. Well, Phil, let's drill down on CardioMEMS. It was certainly a very promising product when it came out, and the acquisition was very important. How has it fulfilled its promise at Abbott, and how does it help connect patients with physicians, as you stress was so important for that to happen? I think to understand that really fully, you really have to understand why we see patients. I mean, we see patients to have a certain assessment of how their body is holding fluid. Is their body holding too much fluid, too little fluid? Is the heart able to pump blood to the body? We call that uh, congestion and perfusion. And so the goals of actually seeing a patient, talking to them and doing a physical exam are really to establish how much volume is in the blood vessels, how much blood is pumping to the organs, and are those two parameters well-balanced? with the medications and devices that we have. Fundamental to that assessment are the pressures that the heart has to pump against when it's ejecting blood either out to the body or out to the lungs. And the pressures there are made up of mostly how much fluid is in that blood vessel. And it's the fluid that builds up that then causes 91% of people who are hospitalized to go to the hospital. The fluid builds up, people can't tell that it's building up, it builds up over weeks. And then all of a sudden kind of overflows and patients have that sensation of drowning. They go to the hospital. They require the hospitalization. It's a horrible event, as we mentioned. And it makes their heart get worse, it turns out. Each time they get sick and have to be hospitalized, it's not the hospitalization. It's the fact that they decompensated. 
that causes their heart to get worse over time. And so the whole idea of seeing patients in a disease management program is to see them frequently enough to capture that process. Well, unfortunately, that's not possible if you see three or 4,000 people with heart failure. You can't see them all every week. And it turns out that even if you did, you wouldn't be able to see this change in how the filling pressures or how those pressures in the blood vessels were starting to in increase. The patients don't have symptoms. They can't, you can't see this on physical examination. So the beauty of CardioMEMS is that this little tiny sensor that doesn't require a battery or a lead can be permanently implanted in that major vessel called the pulmonary artery. And that then is, is externally interrogated by the patient and you get this beautiful trend analysis that allows you to see this trend of increasing pressures that reflect increasing volume. And you can make remote decisions about changes in medication, typically with, with water pills or diuretics, a gentle adjustment to bring those pressures back under control. Now this all happens before the patient even knows there's a problem. And, and so even if you were seeing them physically in the, in the office, you wouldn't be able to get the information you get from cardio mints. And now you can do it completely virtual completely remotely, which in COVID has turned out to be a remarkable experience. I just was in Carlsberg, Germany, where a gentleman and one nurse, actually a physician, one nurse took care of 170 patients through the pandemic for over nearly a year and a half. None of those patients had to come to the office, wow. much less come to the hospital. And so, I mean, it was just amazing to see how useful this information as a disease management tool became. I can't imagine how important that is, given that what we're learning now about people who had put off their care and now, unfortunately, are suffering. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So what is CardioMEMS? Is it actually sensing the blood rushing by? Is that what it's, is that, is that what it's no, picking up? It, it, we, we have algorithms to actually look at that flow, but those are under further development. But currently, the, what the device simply provides is pressure. It's a microelectromechanical system, and, and that concept of pressure sensing is is used in almost everything that we touch, like automobiles and cell phones. And I mean, it's a very almost ubiquitous technology. This particular sensor was initially developed to be used in a jet engine, a very hostile environment to measure wow. pressure. And so the range of pressure discrimination, as well as the frequency in which this device works was changed for a medical purpose. And then the size was changed, the implant process was then developed, and then the trials began. But this uh, system, well, you know, frankly, Tom, we, we use these sensors and sense more things in our automobile by the time we leave the garage to the end of the driveway than we'll ever do in a human body. And so this concept of applying that kind of technology to monitor humans is really novel. It is very simple and it provides information that can be quite life changing. Remarkable. So how is the data managed and, and how has that changed over the years? I mean, we're now at a point where, again, when CardioMEMS started out, it was a novel concept. Now data is an integral part of healthcare delivery. How is all the data from that sensor managed? How is it received by the physician? And how has that evolved over the last couple of years? Is it you mentioned the, the nurse who's been able to track patients. I don't know if there's some sort of iPad app where they can do that. How, how is it actually, how is the data actually received and read? Currently, we have, well, I'll, I'll just tell you the system of how the information flows. The information is acquired, as I mentioned, by the patient lying back on a pad, which has an antenna that interrogates the device. Hemodynamic data is then acquired by the system that in the patient's electronic system, it's encrypted and then sent by cell, cellular transmission. There's a cell 
process involved in the patient electronic system. That then is sent to the Merlin system. Okay. The Merlin network is a secured network that's essentially an extension of the medical device and regulated by the FDA accordingly. That then is encrypted again and then put onto the website. And then there's a secured access process that users have to have to get access to the data. They only have access to their patients. Patients upload the data every day, not so that people will look at it, but they, that creates a trend analysis. And we know that those pressures change three weeks before patients get sick. It's not an intensive care unit. We create this trend analysis so that threshold management can happen. So the users then define a threshold of pressures in which the patient can normally stay. And if they exceed or go below a certain threshold, then that is an actionable event. And that, that then is uh, essentially a management by exception process in which the system itself will tell the provider which patients are outside their predefined range of pressures those are the patients that the provider has to look at. Mm-hmm. Now, what we found is that most centers that use cardiomems actually have uh, nurses that either advanced practice nurses or RNs that, that work within a physician's essentially global standing order, that they look at these pressures, look at threshold management, call the patient, change the diuretics, and then they can now see the effects of the change in diuretic. Uh, it brings the pressures back down. They're good. They're back in the threshold. So it's similar to sort of continuous glucose management, um, oh, you know, uh, so, so we know where the blood sugar should be. And if it goes out, we act on it. And if we don't, you know, it's good. We have plans to automate that process and put it in the context of an app that the patient will have on their smartphone with the physician directions or prescription all embedded so that the patient can get the pressure, see where they are in their threshold management, and then have the physician's uh, prescription immediately available for them to do what they need to do for that moment. Wow. So is that, I wanted to ask about, you mentioned Merlin. I assume that's affiliated with, with my Merlin, which is, is that the product you're talking about? Right. Yeah. And we're in the true, cardi- my Cardiomens app is currently in its final stages of development, but it will be a quite a robust process in which Eventually, uh, it has all has to be FDA reviewed and, and evaluated, sure. but eventually we envision the patient having those pressures in their hands such that this daily management or weekly management all can go to the patient. We must start to bring the patient in, in this mix. I mean, the patients are the largest healthcare workers out there, and they have the vested interest to get better. And so bringing the data, bringing them into the loop, not this paternalistic, I'm going to tell you what to do thing all the time. I think that that empowers patients. As long as we can empower patients, they take control of their disease and they are the ones that I think can scale this process of connected healthcare and make the outcomes much different. Well, that's terrific. Phil, thank you for, uh, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Tom, for having me. It's good to talk to you. All right, we're back with our top stories. We've got the entire editorial team here, minus Jim Hammeran, who's out on well-deserved parental leave, as uh, as Chris Newmarker pointed out. So we're down to three now. Uh, we're going to roll the dice. And Danielle, you'll be one and two. Brian Bunch, you'll be three and four. Sean Hooley, you'll be five and six. We had our guaranteed a winner in this roll. Everyone can hear the Yahtzee die roll. Number three, Brian Bunch. My selection is FDA's approval of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Would you like to hear why? 
Yes, we very <laughs> much would, Brian. <laughs> why, why was that important, I, not, Brian? That, I don't really remember that happening. What was that? Why was it important having a vaccine against COVID? So there's six reasons I pick for that. So first one is the the first the first COVID nineteen vaccine to be approved in the U.S. Still the only one to have official FDA approval. Number two is the first mRNA vaccine to be approved by FDA. Number three, it's the most popular um, COVID-19 vaccine in the U.S. and in many parts of the world. Wow. Four, Pfizer and BioNTech, as well as Moderna and other companies, role um, in developing mRNA vaccines help catalyze interest in nRNA therapeutics by years, maybe even decades. So the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine also helped change the dynamics of mRNA research. So before the pandemic, you had mRNA-based companies, but they're mainly focused on novel indications, kind of like white space, not so much focus on infectious disease. COVID-19 happened, that all changed. Um, as the first FDA-approved mRNA vaccine, the platform that Pfizer and others helped develop will inspire scores of other mRNA vaccines for viruses, cancer, potentially like heart indications. It's a big, long list of potential things, so we'll see what shakes out, but odds are we'll see a lot more than just vaccines in the future. Um, also, the interest in mRNA could play a role in fueling research and related platforms like cell and gene therapy. It should be noted that the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine is itself not a gene therapy product, but it's a related kind of technology. Five, it highlighted, so the approval highlighted a new model of collaboration between the industry. So you have like a big name, big pharma company, and then a, a startup coming together, sharing profits 50-50. It's kind of a unique model there. Then finally, number six, it's the first to find use as a booster. And recently, the company announced that three doses of the vaccine appear to be effective against Omicron. So that's it. <laughs> I mean, here's one thing, one thought I have. I mean, you look at like really big crises in history, I mean, usually wars, but I mean, crises as well. I mean, I mean world, by the end of World War II, we had like, we had like, we were splitting the atom and we had, you know, rockets and jet engines. And, you know, it, it, I mean, it, it, is, is mRNA going to be kind of the thing that we were like, yeah, that pandemic was horrible, but this is like the advance technologically that we got out of it. I mean, how much do you think this could be like our big our big leap forward in a way? I think it's too soon to say. So last week, Moderna announced flu vaccine results. Like so they have a few different candidates in the works, but the first early like interim results they announced were they were positive, but they were not really much better than like a pre-existing flu shot. So for that one, the early data suggests it's on par, like not like a game changer. But you have research underway on like like of course, infectious disease, but also autoimmune disease, rare disorders, oncology, regenerative medicine, cardiovascular, metabolic disease, and um, CNS disorders. So you have all these different things. So my bet is that some of them will shake out, but who knows how long it'll take and who knows um, which indications will really lead. At least it's kind of neat that something that just had like, you know, some you know, like basically some startup companies like trying to get something going in some areas that now, you know, as, as we hopefully get out of the pandemic, um, you know, we could could have some really exciting healthcare therapies and vaccines, you know, coming, coming, hopefully, you know, over the next decade that, you know, could really, really help people's lives, like fingers crossed. And it seems like also just like the nimbleness of the technology could help us next time we have a pandemic, or if we continue to have the same pandemic for some time, you can, we can, edit the platform. You can make new versions for variants. I think Pfizer and uh, Moderna are both working on Omicron-specific versions of their vaccine should they need them. 
Yeah, that could be really welcome. They could just reprogram for future variants. and Yeah, and they're planning on having those ready by, I want to say, like March of next year or so. So like a matter of months. Two months before we have Device Talks Boston, May 10th and 11th in Boston, which wouldn't be possible without a vaccine. So I think uh, speaking as an events organizer, I agree with you, Brian Bunce. What if we did like, you know, come to Device Talks Boston, get a free Omicron shot? We're going to call it the Omicron shot? <laughs> <laughs> Is that in the hotel bar? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh. <laughs> Free happy hour with Omicron shots on the side. That's a great choice, Brian Bunce. That's that's uh, that's pretty much a gimme. So good good choice and, and really well presented. Cool. Okay, so we're down to our, our two best, I'm sure. Uh, Danielle Kirsch, you will be one to three. Sean Hooley, you'll be four, five, and six. Rolling the Yahtzee die. It's a three, Danielle Kirsch. Bring us your top story of 2022, 2021, not giving up yet, 2021. So I did an article earlier this year about how Abbott engineered a catheter delivered device for premature babies, the Piccolo. It was personally one of my favorites because I know a lot of uh, pediatric RNs and they've told me a lot about how they have to, like surgeons have to engineer adult devices to fit into kids and, you know... most of the time it's not indicated for a child. So I thought this story was interesting. And then we've also, well, just this week, I covered um, some electrophysiology devices for pediatrics that uh, recently won some innovation awards. But I just, I just think we're going to see a lot of innovation in pediatrics soon there's going to be there's going to be a pediatric device renaissance happening so that's that's what i'm going to be looking forward to in the next five five to ten years that's a great point and you you would think with the advances in miniaturization both technically electronically but also just in manufacturing that uh, would allow for a lot of advancement in uh in pediatric implants and, and tools as well so that's a great point Right. Yeah. Danielle, I just got to say the prediction about the Renaissance. I hope that's true because, yeah, they're definitely, I mean, I've heard the same thing. There's just a dearth of uh, of really high quality, innovative pediatric devices. So just be right. be great that yeah, kids can get more attention. And the, the Piccolo is just, like I said, that was one of my favorite things that I've covered this year because it's the size of a, the size of a small pea and it fits into the heart of a premature baby. So I just can't wow. fathom something that small going into such a, um, a small patient population and vulnerable patient population at that. So Great choice. I, I To your point, you got me thinking, Danielle, I can't imagine working at Abbott and holding one of these little things in your hand as you're sending it, just, just developing that and knowing where it's going. It's going to be a very impactful way to, to spend your day. So very great. Great right. choice. All right. Well, I don't need my Yahtzee die anymore, Sean Hooley. You're the you're the big winner. You're the big number one. Thousands of people have waited to hear this through this entire Woo. boring podcast to hear your choice of news of the year of 2021. What's uh, what's your selection? My selection is uh, earlier this year I interviewed Dexcom CEO Kevin Sayer, uh, and it, it became as I've sort of shifted a little focus to drug delivery this year, and diabetes is a massive part of that. It became one of the biggest stories. Uh, that our, our readers are still reading, you know, pretty consistently five months later. And it's just about, it was just an interview about the company, their next generation uh, G7 continuous glucose monitor and, uh, you know, kind of what's next. And it's it's clear that they're excited and it's really interesting to see kind of the, what what everyone is looking for in, in diabetes management. It's a smaller, you know, wearable sensor. And then, you know, over the course of this year, there's been even more news where, 
Insulet's got their new wearable insulin mm-hmm. pump. Uh, Med- Medtronic's got next generation pump technology. Uh, Sensionics, ever since, has new next gen technology, and all of it's kind of coming to a head where we're kind of expecting it all to come in as early as months. You know, at some point in 2022, it seems like for for a lot of this technology, including Dexcoms, and that's definitely exciting for the future of diabetes monitoring and management. And, and Sean, I've kind of had the sense a lot of the new stuff that's coming out, it's just, it's as you said, it's kind of like more miniaturized, it's more user-friendly. Um, it could, how much could just this just like shift, you know, the way that, you know, people with, you know, diabetes have to you know, manage their disease? It seems like the whole idea is to make it as, uh, almost as if you're not wearing it. Like you notice wow. it as little as possible. It's clear that that's sort of the aim they're going for, uh, particularly with Dexcom and, and Insulate, which are two companies that I've had the fortune of talking to and learning about their technology. And yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's kind of like what Tom was talking about earlier with the computer to the desktop. Like they just want to keep, you know, making it easier and easier and easier to manage diabetes and live with it and along the way, creating some pretty interesting technology. Yeah, that's really cool. It just feels like next year, year could be a year where we really see a leap forward and, you know, what's available for in that space. It's very cool. Great choice. Now, I know you spoke with uh, Shacey Petrovic of Insulet. I, I did on the podcast as well, and she'll actually be a keynote at Device Talks Boston in, in May. Uh, and I think it was her who shared the 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 information that someone managing their diabetes has to make upwards of two to 300 decisions per day, just about what they eat, when to increase that, when to decrease that, when to move, when not to move. And uh, it's just such an important uh, development to be able to give them tools to, to, to focus on living regular lives as opposed to managing their disease. So important year for diabetes. Great choice. All right, we're here with another visit from our sponsor, KNF. This time I'm speaking with Dave Howard. Dave Howard is Business Development Manager at KNF. Dave, you're working on a lot of exciting stuff, but tell me, what do you see happening in the future? With KNF's wide range of liquid and gas pump products, we've had the luxury of supplying to many diverse industries. But of course, in the U.S., we've always had a heavy focus on medical devices. We work in applications like diagnostic systems, therapy and treatment devices, cleaning and sterilization equipment, many others. The last time uh, we spoke, I mentioned about our low pulse and smooth flow products, which we developed because of what we heard from the market. And we're always listening and we're always looking for what's coming next. So more recently, we're actually seeing demands for making systems smarter. And that's where we see things going in the future. Customers are demanding a perfect fit for their device. We are very rarely selling off-the-shelf type items because most of the products that we're selling are optimized in one way or another, really to fit the customer specs. And in some cases, just the mechanically modified products are still falling short of what the customer's expectations are. So many pump companies offer a wide range of standard products. And while we will still continue to support this wide range of products that we offer, uh, the direction that we're going has been in adding more advanced electronics in combination with our pumps. And through these digitally customizable full control brushless DC motors, we're actually helping to fill the gaps in between products. So now we have these more sophisticated motors and control boards that can actually be programmed to more accurately control motor speeds and in turn, better pump performance. And we can do this 
as well as other types of features like slow starts if customers are concerned with current draw spikes. And all the features that these motors offer really complement our pump and now offer the ability to essentially talk to other sensors or controllers and therefore more precisely control the accuracy of the flow rates and pressure limitations and requirements. So in many cases with this new design and in the future, we can actually help simplify our customers' overall project and their desire to reduce the size and use a sort of closed loop pump and motor system while also making it smarter and improve precision, real-time adjustability, and better control. So it's still early on, and we expect needs to evolve over time. And we will just continue to be flexible, listen to what the market is telling us. And we're just really excited to see where that takes us. Great. Thanks very much, Dave Howard and Dave Vanderbeck. Once again, if you want more information, you can go to knf.com. Well, Kevin Bork and Dr. Robert Cormos, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Tom. It's excellent to get this overview of heart failure. The cardiovascular space and the heart space is so wide and broad. And, and uh, even getting ready for this interview, I wanted to make sure I was asking the right questions because there's so many different aspects of it. So I'm, I'm really grateful for you to take this time and kind of talk me through things. And I know we're going to hit upon diagnosis and, and treatment and the heart made three and, and all cool stuff in this conversation. But first, I'd love to understand first from uh, Dr. Carmos, how did you find your way into medicine? And then ultimately, how did you find your way into industry? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, how, how I got into medicine was initially through psychology. My undergrad degree was in perceptual psychology. And when I realized that you can't really do much without a medical degree. <laughs> I decided to go into medicine. I was interested in neurosurgery initially. And then after three years of neurosurgery, I moved to cardiac surgery because I like the immediacy of cardiac surgery. Mm -hmm. You know pretty quickly if you've done your job in cardiac surgery. And then I began to focus on mechanical circulatory support while I was still in Toronto in 84 and 5. But I quickly discovered that most of what was happening and the exciting work was being done in the United States. So I looked for programs, ended up at the University of Pittsburgh and arrived there right in the middle of the explosion of knowledge of transplantation with Tom Starzl and, uh -huh. and others. And so it was a perfect time to train as a cardiac surgeon in this space. That's great. It must be very reaffirming to kind of get caught up in that technological wave where there's just excitement and optimism all around you. Well, what you learn pretty quickly is you cannot abstract technology from the human being. It needs to be applicable to how patients live their lives. And that became a very strong focus right from the beginning. We were actually the first at the University of Pittsburgh to discharge a patient with an LVAD outside of a hospital. Wow. Can you imagine that back in the 90s, every LVAD patient had to stay in the hospital until they received a transplant? That's, that's remarkable. So, so, no, I yeah, didn't realize so, that. You know, it's a long journey. Uh, we've come so far from those days to where virtually everybody gets discharged now. Was that your first industry job? I'm looking at your background right now. Or what, what convinced you to, uh, to join industry? I came to a stage in my life where my focus was primarily on patients, mm -hmm. but I'd always been integrated with industry. We, we actually developed the HeartMate 2 at the University of Pittsburgh in our oh. labs. And that kind of opened my eyes to a whole different world. And I'm very glad I joined Abbott because Abbott is a company that brings together so many different disciplines. 
you know, engineering, nursing, physicians, regulatory, innovation, creators, it's all there. And we all work together on one mission, which is to make the patient's life better. Fantastic. And Kevin, let's uh, let's bring you into the conversation. You've been, it appears to be from your background, after going to the University of Massachusetts at Lowell, where I'm trying to take my, my son for a tour there soon. I'm excited oh, nice. about that. <laughs> it appears as if you went right into the med tech industry, correct? How did you That's choose right. that, I did. that path? I did, I did right away. And, and actually, um, shout out to University of Massachusetts at Lowell. I can't say enough about the outstanding education I got there. So good luck to your son. Actually, when I went to the school, the university, I, there was not a biomedical engineering program. There is now. But at the time, I, I had it as an interest, but I was a mechanical engineer by degree and was fortunate enough on my first job out of school to get in the diagnostic area with a, at an MRI company uh, for six years and then joined actually with what has become, it was a startup at the time, but has become a part of Abbott through acquisitions. I'm coming up on my 25th anniversary here. So certainly it's been a, an amazing ride in this technology of, of ventricular assist devices. And, and uh, certainly, you know, there's a part of me that was always interested in medicine as well. But I, I have to admit to myself, just my tendencies and my ability to learn it much more suited to engineering uh, than medicine. It's been fantastic being able to associate with physicians all along the way, which we have to do to stay very close to it to uh, come up with these technologies. Were you intending to, to build a career in medtech or was it just a job that sounded interesting? What, what led no, you? No, I was certainly seeking. I it applied to all of the Boston area uh, medical device companies at the time. Uh. And now, would I, if I had not been successful, would I have resigned myself to something else? Sure, but I was focused on medtech. And then once I got into it, I kind of got the bug. And a lot of engineers who are in, in medical devices have to admit to themselves that there's stuck there for life because it's so rewarding. Like the benefits that come along with it are really rewarding. And we end up bumping into each other. Even people who do move from company to company, we start to know each other. That's great. Well, well, we're obviously happy to have you and happy 25th anniversary at Abbott. So let's talk about the state that we've already kind of begun uh, the, the conversation, which I think is fascinating, the, the state of heart failure and, and treating it and sort of where we are with the, the pumps that we, we have. Dr. Cormos, could you sort of give us a, an idea of what are the challenges facing clinicians treating patients with heart failure today, maybe versus 10 years ago? Just give us a, a sense of where we are with things. Is this something that we are controlling or is it still something that needs a lot more tools to help manage? So it's an it's an interesting question that you know one you would like to say that with time the treatment and diagnosis of heart failure would get easier but I have to say that there is an explosion in this country of heart failure huh the number of patients now recognized with heart failure has really exploded and not just in adults we have you know thousands of patients with congenital heart disease that were treated as children successfully and now are in their 20s and 30s and getting heart failure. Wow. And there are populations of patients that I think we didn't realize were so underserved. And this is regionally in certain parts of the country, but certainly if you look at race, if you look at gender, there are a lot of patients where heart failure wasn't appropriately diagnosed. Mm -hmm. You know, in many cases, heart failure is misdiagnosed as shortness of breath that's due to obesity, for example, or diabetes, or even more commonly chronic lung disease. Mm -hmm. And that can go on for years before 
it's appreciated that the patient has heart failure. So to me, this is a challenge and clinicians are challenged by this all the time. Why? Because the patients are in the hands of physicians in the community, many of whom see 20, 30, 40 patients a day. This is a tremendous load on these physicians. So how do you focus on heart failure? It's difficult. What is the current method of diagnosing heart failure? I think we all think about the treadmill and the Pulte monitor around your chest, and that's the way I, maybe, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm completely wrong on how it's diagnosed, but what is the easiest and most common way that heart failure is diagnosed? So it really is based on three principles. First is functional limitation. The patient can no longer do things in his life that they used to be able to do. So that's the first thing. They can't walk as far. They can't go shopping. They can't pick up their kids. I mean, it's just functional limitation. The next very important element here is congestion. Now, by that, I mean that when the left side of the heart, the left ventricle isn't pumping adequately, the blood backs up where? In the lungs. Mm -hmm. And as the blood backs up in the lungs, that congestion begins to affect the right side of the heart. And now you get swelling in the abdomen and legs, et cetera. So those are the two key things. The third are the hemodynamics measurements. And this is where a lot of physicians who do, for example, interventional cardiology, they, they're working in the cardiac catheterization lab, are asked to see patients to rule out what you just said, you know, coronary artery disease is very common, right? And what they find is that the patient has heart failure. And that is the first time that that physician that sent that patient found out the patient had heart failure. So I think it's those three things. The most common, I think, way of detecting it by a test would be the right heart catheterization, where you put a catheter in the heart and you realize that the pressures are high in the heart because it's congested. As far as diagnostics go, that's a very invasive procedure. You're scheduling a day surgery. I mean, it's not a digital diagnosis. It's not breathing into something and getting diagnosed immediately. It's a, it's a procedure that requires some effort. Yeah, it's, it's an outpatient procedure that yep. requires a couple hours, but, but it is invasive, correct? Interesting. And Kevin, let's just bring it over to you from a design perspective. You've been working in this space along with Dr. Comos for almost the entire time as, it, as it's grown. I can't imagine a more unique design challenge than developing an LVAD, a heart valve that needs to work continuously. And if it doesn't, the results are critical. What are the challenges that come along with designing a heart pump? Well, for sure. And, and you know, one of the nice parts of hanging around in one spot for so long is you get to see the evolution because, as you can imagine, with the degree of, of evaluation, design, testing, a regulatory path, it takes quite a while to get innovations out there and to watch the uptake of these technologies takes time. But I've certainly uh, seen us go from just can we pump blood, like just the rudimentary aspects of pumping blood. And the challenges, of course, in those early times were mechanical wear and tear, uh, just you know, bulk reliability of the implanted device, and certainly blood trauma. In the early times, it was it was literal blood trauma, the breaking of red blood cells uh, called hemolysis, uh, which would be due to the, sort of the destructive nature of, of the pump itself, all of which over time you know, evolved. And, I, and I'm thinking of the sort of first generation devices, what we called HeartMate XV or HeartMate 1. Mm -hmm. uh, and then over to the improvements uh, you know, for our technology, it was deemed HeartMate 2, which were these smaller, quiet, much more reliable rotary pumps. 
have definitely displaced the other types of pumps in the in the early days, and those became much more reliable. We have patients well over a decade, hundreds of patients actually over that time frame, uh, who can keep their pumps that long. Wow. So the reliability aspects aren't the big thing, but now you get into the details where on the implanted side, further improvements in hemocompatibility become an issue, and certainly in that the early rotary pump times we had, for example, thrombosis of the pump itself, it would be blood clotting of the pump, a challenge that we wanted to overcome. And then on the external equipment side, of course, the reliability of that and the usability of that equipment, we've learned a lot over time of how our patients and our physicians manage the equipment, the information that should be available to them, that shouldn't be available to them, how you alarm Mm -hmm. for those settings, all of which sort of have come to the modern, our Heartbeat 3 technology, which really has revolutionized what we call hemocompatibility. This is the friendliness of the device, of the implanted device on the blood, where we've basically eradicated a de novo pump thrombosis and have come very far in improving things like stroke, things like bleeding, gastrointestinal bleeding, and other complications associated with the technology to levels where we can say, wow, this isn't just pumping blood now. We're doing it in a blood-friendly fashion, and the equipment that the patient uses and the information uh, we can exchange is much better. You know, we're not done. And all the things we'll probably end up talking about some of the things as well, but I'm moving into the future. Promise the next level of the therapy that will really keep getting us further and further away from those those early rudimentary things. Just help me understand, but what are are the components associated with the HeartMate 3? Obviously, you've got the pump inside, but is, is there still something on the outside that needs to be carried and monitored? Right now, we have the implanted pump, as you say, and there's an electrical drive line that actually penetrates the skin in your abdomen and comes out to connect to a box that you wear on your belt. It's what we call a controller. And that controller has to be connected to some power supply. So if you're mobile and shopping at the mall or driving to work, you wear battery packs to keep that uh, system running. If you're at home reclining or certainly sleeping, you can plug into a power unit, essentially plug into your wall for power but you're always sort of tethered to that equipment. And one of the most important things we're working on right now in in development is a fully implanted system. This is a system that would obviate that percutaneous driveline that comes through the skin and enable us to just recharge an implanted battery across the skin, similar to the way an iPhone charger can be done without plugging in your phone. And That, of course, has technological challenges, but we're working on that now because we think that would be a very important way for a patient to have some period of untethered runtime during the day for more active lifestyle. Dr. Cormos, I mean, it's it's fascinating. I think you you mentioned 30 years ago that you would release the first patient with an LVAD from the hospital. Now we're at a point where the system can be traveled with. But what is it like for the patients who are using uh, uh, any LVAD, or if you want to speak specifically to HeartMate 3, in terms of does it change their lives? How does, how does it change their lives? What is it like for them to manage this? Is it Obviously, it's a critical need, so they don't unfortunately have a, have a choice. But how does the use of, of an LVAD sort of impact the patient and their lifestyles? I'm glad you asked that question because... You know, one of the nice and fun things about this job is you get to listen to a lot of different individuals, those that take care of patients. But more importantly, we have over 160 patient advocates, that is patients who have had LVADs, that can tell us exactly the question you asked us. You know, how do you feel? And you know what's the recurring theme all the time when you talk to patients is that it's a phrase that's often used in heart transplant recipients that 
I have a second chance. I've got my life back. I can go to my daughter's wedding. I can travel. I can, some patients actually go back to work, believe it or not. And so the first thing they notice is lack of symptoms. They're no longer short of breath and their activity level increases. Now, are there things that they tell us they wish weren't there? Of course. You know, you're living with technology and that demand that technology can sometimes put on a patient depends a little bit on how that patient reacts. You and I both know that some people can't stand putting a watch on (laughs) every morning or a Fitbit. It's a pain. So you can imagine that some patients find technology a challenge. Certainly what Kevin said about the driveline coming out is still perceived by some as a limiting factor, but you're trading that for life. And more importantly, all the studies that have ever been done demonstrate that all the quality of life metrics improve within three months of implant and stay elevated out to two years. That's a great point. I guess I was thinking it was more of a a maintenance. If if someone who has one of these done, they're able to maintain the life that they've had, but it actually is is restorative. They're actually able to get the life back that they had. In many respects, that's true. Now, because we do all ages of patients and everybody has a different lifestyle, you're not going to find that a patient who likes to spend his time watching television is suddenly going to play golf. Right. I mean, you know, it, it depends a little bit on the lifestyle that you had at some point. Absolutely. So let's start looking forward a bit in terms of, I guess, we talked earlier about diagnostics. Is this an area where you're working to, if it's an area that needs to be improved upon, is this an area where Abbott is focused, diagnosing the disease? Yes, absolutely. As I mentioned earlier, one of the most common and important signals of congestion is the pressure in the heart, and specifically pressure in the pulmonary artery, because that's the side of the heart from the right side that pumps into a congested lung. So as that resistance goes up, the pulmonary artery pressures start to rise. As they rise, your right ventricle starts to get sicker and sicker. What we've discovered is that using devices such as the CardioMEMS, which is an implantable pulmonary artery pressure sensor, using that, we begin to see changes of congestion. And in our data, the risk of death goes up before the patient actually realizes that they're in trouble. So it's an early signal. And that CardioMEMS pressure sensor can literally act as a gateway to the other therapies down the road. When is that implanted, the CardioMEMS? I thought that was part of a device, but is it, is it a tool that's implanted first to sort of monitor? Yes. Yes. It's a tiny pressure sensor okay. that can be delivered into the pulmonary artery through a peripheral vein. And it's currently approved to be used in patients in class three heart failure where they tend to benefit the most because you can detect early heart failure and it helps you in the management of heart failure. Think for a second in the future, if we made those pressures in some fashion, you got to think of the way it's presented to a patient, but let's say the patient had access to those numbers. Now you suddenly have a device in hands, in the hands of a patient where they can better manage their own heart failure. And the advantage of that is keeping the patient out of the hospital. And by the way, we also know that some physicians are taking that information and using it even after a patient gets an LVAD to help them set the parameters of the LVAD to ideal speeds and things that are optimal for the patient. 
So there's a lot coming down the road in that fashion. So it almost becomes like a like a, an insulin pump in a, in a monitor where the diabetic patient is able to monitor their levels and to act accordingly. Kevin, what does data do for, for you going forward as you design HeartMate? Would it be HeartMate 4? Is that where the direction we're headed? When you're innovating and creating new, new pumps, I mean, what is the influx of data? It must make your job easier, I imagine, in terms of design. For but- sure. Yep. If they let the uh, engineers name it, uh, if the marketing folks let us name it, probably it will be HeartMate 4. <laughs> <laughs> it's not where we put our imagination. Uh, we, we, uh, we certainly think that the future, a great part of our innovation in the future is directed towards this sort of data, making this data available in more remote access ways, not only to the physician, but also potentially internally to the device. Dr. Cormos already mentioned that you know, in a sense, the CardioMEMS is used completely independently from the, the HeartMate 3. That's true, they're independent devices, but Dr. Cormos also mentioned the potential utility of a patient sort of self-tracking himself through heart failure and being able to anticipate when to avoid a hospitalization or something like that. But also as the disease progresses, we may be able to someday interpret signals of appropriateness for an LVAD. And then once a patient has an LVAD, to use that pulmonary artery pressure for controlling the device. We are imagining things even beyond that in terms of using the pressure sensing technology in conjunction or on board our implanted ventricular assist device as such that, well, for one thing, we could be measuring pressures elsewhere other than the pulmonary artery, but also potentially using those signals internally for in algorithms that help uh, with physiologically responsive maneuvers of the pump at the moment, the pump is set by the physician to a particular speed, and the patient is discharged from the hospital at that speed. And a patient does a lot of different things during the day, including sleeping, resting, exercising, but the pump doesn't, ch- at this moment, change in response to that. Not to mention that the, a lot of our patients start doing more of the activities that they had stopped doing, and the speed doesn't change in response to that either. So We've sort of nicknamed the concept of a smart pump, which is a, a pump that could do more than just operate at one speed. And already on board the HeartMate 3, we have a feature called the artificial pulse. And this is, it's always on, and it's basically a modulation of the pump speed once every two seconds to sort of mimic in some ways a heartbeat. Uh, it's not, we call it quasi-physiologic because it's not physiologic or, or attempting to do some of those things, but it does have certain advantages. But much more things are, or many more things are potential for the future as well. And we, we think that sensing signals, gathering some of this data, like you said, uh, utilizing that either just reporting out or internally in algorithms for physiologically responsive uh, systems is really a, an important part of the future. Fascinating. Currently, is there any way to change the speed without reopening and, and getting access to the, the pump? There is, but it involves a doctor's visit because the, yeah. the device we use to change your speed is actually an iPad that the doctor has that the okay. patients don't have. So it's a clinic visit. And it's, by the way, not a big deal. One of the things that's been very nice about the HeartMate 3 is it's not very fussy. There, <laughs> there aren't a lot of speed changes that have to occur. We just don't consider it as proof that therapy is optimized. It, it probably isn't. And we, yeah. we think that even if it's subtle speed changes, that could provide some advantage in the future. Gosh, I never, I had never even thought of that. That's remarkable. The final area I wanted to hit upon was I, I was doing obviously some research for this, and I saw discussion about your work in, in pediatrics. Uh, Dr. Cormos, I don't know if you want to hit upon this. You referenced children earlier. 
how prevalent is heart failure or the need for a pump in children? So we have worked very closely with the Action Learning Network that is a collaboration of pediatric centers across the country. The Action Learning Network is a very solid registry that contains a lot of good information about the pediatric population. And frankly, they helped us a lot get the pediatric indication for the HeartMate 3. There are a lot of children that have heart failure primarily because of congenital heart disease. We're talking about kids who are under the age of 18. And mm -hmm. so some of these kids are big kids, right? Yeah. I mean, as you get into teenage years, some of them are as big as adults. So we take into account that whole population. Within that group, besides congenital heart disease, are certain inflammatory diseases like viruses and things like that that'll affect children and young patients. The interesting thing about this is that we always think of a heart pump as something that's either a bridge to transplant, right? Or if you're an older patient, you're going to keep the pump and live with it forever. But keep in mind that some of these hearts get better on the pump. Hmm. They actually recover. And that population tends to be focused in the younger population. And I got to tell you that I've seen probably about 20 patients over the years that I've removed pumps from, and nothing is more gratifying wow. than being able to tell that patient, go your way. You don't need a heart transplant. You don't need a heart pump anymore. Your heart's back to normal. And that we see every year, a number of those young people get better. But the younger population is interesting because when they get better, Kicking this to a personal level of gratification, you're not only helping the child, but you're helping the parents and the circle around them. And to watch these kids gain a meaningful life and go back to school and interact with their playmates, or in the case of those that go to college, that is just a remarkable thing to see. I think that the group with congenital heart disease, as I said, is, is rapidly expanding. There are probably 20 or 30,000 patients out there today alive that are adults with congenital heart disease that need some solutions. And, you know, we don't need to get into the details. It's a much more complex disease, and not every one of them is suitable for an LVAD, but there may be some that can take advantage. One of the people that's done the most work in this is actually Kevin, our engineer. He has been working very hard with some of our team to expand that population and understand how the HeartMate 3 can work in children. The HeartMate 3 is the only pump that's approved for children right now. But I think Kevin has, has a unique perspective on this. Kevin, let's follow up on that. I mean, I'm looking now, it seems like we're coming upon a year, December 17th, 2020, is when you got yeah. approval from the FDA. So talk about the application in pediatrics. Dr. Cormos hit the emotional aspect that really is the fuel for the fire here in the, in the research and development group for sure. But, you know, we actually recognized that the HeartMate 3 had uh, important features that could plug into this technology. Although designed as an adult left ventricular assist device, it is smaller than the prior devices. It is implanted right in the chest and doesn't require a subdiaphragmatic pump pocket like a previous technologies did. And with that smaller size in mind and the extreme hemocompatibility of the device, the improvements in the hemocompatibility are actually the, the big driver because Dr. Comos mentioned that there are very few solutions for these children who have these diseases and the technology that was available to them 
had a series of morbidities that we really thought that it was a good match to have the improved immunocompatibility of HeartMate 3. So certainly uh, for this, and you know, as we think about our future technologies as well, it's an important subpopulation that we keep in mind. And it's, it's consistent, entirely consistent with elsewhere in Abbott as well. Abbott is, or many of its adult solutions in the device space has looked for ways to make either smaller ones or, or more suitable ones for a pediatric population as well. So this is part of the Abbott culture. So, and, and if you've covered this, I apologize, but I just want to understand, is this a different product itself, the HeartMate 3 that you it's not. It's actually the exact same device. Exact same one. Okay. Uh, all we changed was the, uh, the the label in the in the instructions for use uh, manual that said it's it's appropriate for pediatric use because and we had to go we had to use as that action learning network data uh, mm-hmm. to prove that to FDA, but it's become the only device uh, with that approval. Could you help me define heart failure? I mean, it's such a broad term. Other subsets to it that it covers failures of different part of the hearts. How do you define heart failure? I mean, the name itself seems pretty clear, but but what is the clinical definition of heart failure? You know, it's changed over the years. There used to be a standard definition yeah. of heart failure that said, you know, when, when the heart can no longer pump enough blood to keep the organs functioning normally, that you had heart failure. But that's actually far down the spectrum. So heart failure includes derangements of the heart muscle function where it fails to perform adequately, but that level can occur very early in the disease. So saying that it has to include failing organs is probably too far down the road. Mm-hmm. Heart failure comes in a couple different formats or phenotypes. One is heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, which means the heart can't contract adequately. And that starts in the left side primarily. But it's a global process, but it's affected most early on at the left side of the heart. The other is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which is heart failure that occurs because the heart muscle is stiff and it can't relax enough to let the heart fill with blood. In both cases, you have heart failure. Now, there's a third, which is kind of in between the two that cardiologists are are beginning to recognize. So the spectrum of heart failure is quite broad. Well, that's consistent with how I was looking at it. So I appreciate the better understanding. So that's great. Well, this has been a, an excellent conversation and I've learned so much and I'm grateful for the both of you for, uh, for taking time and, and joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Great to meet you, Tom. Thank you very much. All right. And we're back and we're wrapping up this season of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. This is the final episode of 2021, but we will be back in 2022 and we'll all be on social media. So please reach out to us there. You can find us in various spots. We'll work our way down the line to get our information. Danielle Kirsch, how can folks find you on social media? I'm on Twitter at Danielle underscore Kirsch, K-I-R-S-H, and the same name on LinkedIn. Fantastic. And Brian Bunce? Find me on LinkedIn. Pretty easy to find, I think. That's right. You're the only Brian Bunce in Northern California or something, right? There are actually two. Wow. <laughs> <is> really bizarre. <laughs> but you'll, you'll only find one that's a pharma editor, so it yeah, kind of narrows it down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pick that one, yes. <laughs> Sean Hooley, where are you at in social media land? You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my name is spelled S-E-A-N-W-H-O-O-L-E-Y. And then on Twitter, the same spelling plus W-T-W-H is my handle, Sean Hooley, W-T-W-H. So 
either or feel free to follow or connect very cool chris newmarker chris newmarker just like a new marker you can find me on linkedin Finally, and at, Twitter at New Marker. At New Marker, as in a new marker. Yes. And I am on Twitter at MedTech Tom. I am on LinkedIn, Tom S A L E M I. And uh, please do find us on social media. Please do connect to us when you share this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Please like, follow, subscribe. <laughs> Took the words out of my mouth. Please do follow us and uh, subscribe to Device Talks Weekly Podcast. You not only receive this podcast, but other podcasts like the Intuitive Talks Podcast, which we put out on this channel. It's a great, uh, great way to make sure you don't miss an episode uh, containing some very cool medical device technology. So that is a wrap. Great job. Thanks for uh, for appearing on uh, on this final episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast for 2021. Here's to no COVID in 2022. <laughs> That's right. Any other uh, any other New Year's wishes out there? I think we're all agreeing less COVID would be the best. <laughs> less thing. COVID. Less COVID. People get vaccinated for, for crying out loud. Crying out loud. <laughs> all right. Well, that is a wrap. Tune in next year. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast waiting for you. You want to scream something? Are you good? Let's COVID! Let's COVID! <laughs> <laughs>